I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. Denver is contending with a humanitarian and fiscal crisis as the city of 713,000 people has absorbed nearly 40,000 migrants in little more than a year. And the new mayor, elected just seven months ago, said last week Denver is, quote, hitting a breaking point. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on February 14th as part of its series Election 2024, The Issues, Mayor Mike Johnston talks about the migrants who've been sent to his city by Texas Governor Greg Abbott and what they need most. And the mayor talks about what the bipartisan Senate immigration bill would have done for his city and who's to blame for its failure to even get a vote. We now have to get used to what we have to do in light of the new Trump border policy, because this is now Trump's policy. This is the policy he wanted to stay in place. The chaos of no structure, no support, no resources for border cities or for us uh, was what he and the House Republican leadership chose. And I think that's a great catastrophe for the country. So uh, before we talk about your city, let me get your reaction uh, to uh, the big thing that happened yesterday, and that is the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Yeah, I think that is um, both a distraction and I think it is a, a tragedy given what we're facing right now. I think what I say is the only reason cities like ours survived through the fall uh, and much of this summer was because of the actions Mayorkas took to help cities like ours. When I met with him in the summer and we talked about how urgent the need was for work authorization uh, because we had people arriving in the city who couldn't work, uh, he took action. You know, he extended temporary protective status to Venezuelans, allowing those folks who arrived to be able to work. Um, and that helped people successfully integrate into the country, get a job, get a place to live. I think what people agree with on all sides for me is when folks arrive in these cities, they should be able to work to support themselves. There's no reason in making uh, them live off of state taxpayer or federal taxpayer dollars when all they want is a chance to work. So his actions have supported us tremendously. I think he's listened. Uh, he's heard us. He knows what we need. He's pushed hard to get bipartisan support to actually solve this issue. And I think they had a measure that would do that. So I think the real uh, villain here is not the Secretary of Homeland Security. It's the Republican House leadership that killed a bipartisan bill that could have very easily solved this problem. I was going to ask you about work permits later, but since you've used, you, you used <laughs> those two words about 10 times in that answer, I'm going to jump to that now. And, and two questions on this. One, explain why it is the solution you have been calling for to help you in Denver. Yeah, I think what we find is the biggest crisis we face is that I talk to migrants every day who will say, you know, I walked 3,000 miles to get here. I don't want any charity. I don't want any public support. All I want is a chance to work. Then I get calls from CEOs in this city every day who say, Mike, we have open jobs, hundreds of them in my company. Can I please hire these migrants who are here? And the only challenge we have is we have a federal government standing right in the way, refusing to let those migrants go to work for those employers who want to hire them. And that requires us to spend more local resources to put people up in shelter and provide food and provide housing when all they want is a chance to provide it for themselves. And so uh, we think we do need federal resources. There is more work to do on coordinating our entry system so that we have uh, migrants arriving in cities around the state and around the country that have capacity. But the most important, easiest way to move here is to expedite work authorization. Um, and that's part of the challenge of the current system is that when you have 10,000 people arriving a day claiming asylum, and it takes six or seven years to process that asylum, they're in the country for six or seven years without the ability to work, and that's a huge challenge. So, and the second part of the question is, why wouldn't work permits be an added draw for migrants to come to the United States? Um, you know, I think that what we understand is 
we don't make the decision on who gets admitted at the border. That is a federal congressional decision, and we think there is a reasonable path to manage that. I think the bipartisan bill would have reduced the total inflow. But our theory has been whatever you decide on the admission policy, you should decide that and you should enforce it. But if you admit 1,000 a day or you admit 8,000 a day, if all those folks are arriving with work authorization, we have a path to support people in either situation. What's very difficult is to have increased volumes of people arising, arriving, no federal support and no work authorization. That's what's unworkable for American cities and states right now. So as you well know, the bipartisan <laughs> Senate immigration bill, the most comprehensive in a, in a generation stuffed with Republican priorities was killed before it could even get out of the Senate. Uh, was there anything in the Senate bill that would have that would have helped Denver? Um, were work pim- work permits or work authorization part of that bipartisan uh, immigration b- d- uh, bill? But they were, and you're right, Jonathan. There were, you know, this is what happens when you have divided government: is people have to work together and they have to compromise. Was everything in there that I wanted? Of course not. I would love a path to citizenship for folks that have been in this country for ten to twenty years. Um, but all the things we needed were in there. Uh, the first was it would have provided more border security to help manage the arrival of, of new migrants. It would have actually given the resources to the border to increase the amount of, uh, of asylum interviewers that could help process these asylum claims. So you wouldn't have someone waiting for six years to hear their case. They could have it get done in 30, 60, or 90 days to process that. That would have been a game changer for us. It did include federal resources to support cities uh, like ours in welcoming uh, people. And it did include accelerated work authorization. So as, as soon as someone arrived, they could they could start working. And I think that idea of maybe a heightened standard for asylum, um, but once you met that standard, you could work right away. That would have been a great solution for us, would have both reduced the crisis at the border and the chaos at the border, would have provided funding for cities, that would have provided work authorization for folks that are here. I think that was a surprisingly elegant solution given how dysfunctional uh, DC can be. The fact that there were bipartisan alignment on that, I think was really encouraging for us. Then of course, so discouraging to see that Trump came in to kill the bill, not because it wouldn't have succeeded. He came in to kill it because he knew it would have succeeded in actually addressing the crisis. And what he wants most is for the crisis to continue. So what I talk to our residents about is we now have to get used to what we have to do in light of the new Trump border policy, because this is now Trump's policy. This is the policy he wanted to stay in place. The chaos of no structure, no support, no resources for border cities or for us uh, was what he and the House Republican leadership chose. And I think that's a great catastrophe for the country. And to that point, point, the Washington Post is reporting, and I'm quoting, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has drafted plans to release thousands of immigrants and slash its capacity to hold detainees after the failure of a Senate border bill that would have erased a $700 million budget shortfall, according to four officials at ICE and the Department of Homeland Security. So, Mayor Johnston, what does that breaking point um, that you've mentioned um, for your city uh, what does that look like? What's changed? What's changed? And, and who are the migrants coming to Denver? Yeah, one thing to say about that, Jonathan, to your, to your point, which I think is so important for folks that are listening, is some people say, well, why doesn't Biden just fix the border? Like, this is executive action. He can take care of this. He doesn't need Congress. This is precisely the reason why he can't solve this without Congress. Congress allocated the dollars to hire the staff to put at the border. This is right now like telling me to solve the line at the DMV. If you had 10,000 people in every DMV building in the city and I had one employee there, what's going to happen? You're going to tell all 9,950 of those people to take a number and come back tomorrow, except for when there's 10,000 every day, that number says come back in six years. What you have to do in that situation is put more staff at the DMV. 
That is exactly what Biden has asked to do, is put the staff there that can process these claims, manage them, decide on them, and then either admit people or not. Without those resources, they are setting it up to fail because they want it to fail. Uh, and so that's not something that Biden can solve by executive order. You can't print money uh, as the president. Only Congress can allocate that. So that is critically important. But I'm really glad you asked about the people that are arriving because every you know couple of days I'll go and I'll go today to visit folks that are in shelter here. And the stories you hear are, are incredible. You know, these are people that did leave a country in crisis. They walked 3,000 miles through the Darien Gap where they watched horrific uh, loss of life, people dying from floods, from cartels, from falling off of mountains into abysses. I mean, it is unbelievable. And you did that entire walk with a five-year-old and a 10-year-old um, sleeping on the streets of Mexico City for weeks, waiting for a chance to get in. Uh, and then when they arrive, and these are people that are, as I mentioned, these are like our local woman here who is a police officer in Venezuela a bilingual Spanish-speaking woman who is a police officer, we would hire her in a minute to work the streets of the city, um, but we can't get access to that. But these are, many of them are professionals. Um, many of them left countries where they were business owners or they were electricians or they were teachers. I met an athletic director from a high school. Um, they have great talents to give to this country uh, and they came here believing that we would offer, offer that opportunity. Uh, and I think we can both offer that opportunity in a way that serves them and actually serves our cities. The great tragedy of this is I don't think conservatives want to spend more and more taxpayer dollars on newcomers. Easiest way to do that is if you let them work, they can support themselves, but they're both denying the chance to give them resources and denying the chance for them to work, which is what makes it particularly tragic. And you speak, if, I've, um, if I, I remember right, you speak fluent Spanish. So these conversations you're having with migrants um, are, the word personal comes to mind because there's no translator. There's no one getting in the way. You can have a very deep conversation with the folks you are, you are meeting. You know, Mayor Johnston, in a January interview with NBC News, you said there that the, uh, there are 4,000 migrants in shelter, which was 10 times what your system can handle. Where do the numbers stand now and how many are in shelters? How many are in shelters today? Yeah, it varies week to week, but we're a bit under 4,000 now. And when I started about seven months ago, as you mentioned, Jonathan, we were about 400. So we've gone up 10 times in that amount of time. And the other you know, challenge is this is winter in Denver. It's regularly 10, 20 degrees outside with three or four inches of snow on the ground. And so we don't want a mom and two kids who arrive on a bus from Texas at 10 o'clock at night in sandals and a t-shirt to be out on the streets sleeping in a tent in 10 degree weather. And so we both want to make sure we can help keep people safe and secure. And we also um, know that we don't have endless resources in the city to support them. And so that's where we find the city really at a breaking point now. Um, this is a good time to bring in a, a question from um, a, a fellow Coloradan, uh, Anna McCaffrey. And her question is uh, to you, Mr. Mayor, you seem to be favoring migrants over taxpaying citizens who live in Denver. How do you plan to sustain this when your policies are pushing people out of Denver? Senior citizens are particularly affected as they cannot sustain the huge tax increases to pay for migrants. Yeah, I appreciate the question, Anna. Um, I think the key couple of facts are we are not raising taxes in any way to support migrants. That is not our plan or our proposal. Um, we are working very hard to support taxpayers here of all sorts. We're focusing on big expansion on efforts around public safety. We're focusing hard on resolving our homelessness issue here, where we've been successful in bringing more than a thousand people who are living unsheltered on the streets off the streets and into housing. That's uh, driving down death rates of people outdoors. It's driving down uh, criminal activity. It's helping increase the vibrance of the city. So we are 
very focused on a number of these things at once. Um, but we also don't want to have thousands of newcomers who end up homeless on our streets or end up without services. Uh, and so this is the balance we're trying to find is how we can both maintain the core services for the city and how we can help support those migrants that have arrived. But I do agree with Anna, this is not a path we can continue on indefinitely given the collapse of federal support. And so the federal government is the one driving the border admissions policy. And if Congress is going to choose to have uh, an admissions policy, that means there are tens of thousands of folks arriving um, uh, each week to cities like ours or to cities around the country, then we need to have some federal support or we have to change the structure of services we can provide to those people that arrive. Mm -hmm. um, here's another question from Colorado. This one from Marjorie Doss. A very simple question, but how are Denver schools coping with the influx of students? It's a great question. We have welcomed almost 3,000 students to Denver Public Schools just in the last six months or so. And so those numbers are going up significantly. Um, and I think teachers are doing what teachers do. They are incredibly finding a way to uh, add more and more students that many of them do not speak any English and uh, are brand new to American school systems and integrating them successfully. And so our hat is off to the amazing educators in Denver that are doing that. And there is a real resource shortage. The governor and the state are working right now to try to backfill some of those uh, dollars that Denver Public Schools need to support them. Uh, and so I think that is one thing we're very encouraged by, and they've done a, an honorable job. I will say it reminds me of, I think, what's broken about the current system is the reason why I think it doesn't make sense to have a city like Denver be the single largest recipient of migrants around the country is uh, what happens right now is we have 3,000 students in Denver. Um, we wouldn't, as the school superintendent, say, let's take 3,000 of those kids and put them all in one of our 140 elementary schools. Because if you put 3,000, and you certainly wouldn't put 3,000 kids in one elementary school and then say, but when you get in that school, what you can't do is you can't go to class because classes are not allowable for you. Uh, that would be chaos. You'd have 200 kids in a classroom, you'd have kids in the hallways, and none of our kids would get an education. That's what we do when we take uh, all the folks that arrive, put them in two or three cities, don't allow them to work and expect them to be successful. It makes it impossible for those cities to navigate that kind of resource demand. And so I think our schools are doing well because they're doing what the country should be doing, which is helping distribute those students across all of our schools so they can each integrate uh, and find success there. Um, as you entered office last summer, Denver was already facing challenges around affordable housing and homelessness. Uh, how does the influx of migrants impact your efforts around those issues? Uh, yeah, so we we are working very hard on this. As I mentioned, we've been very successful, I think, in a a goal more ambitious than I think any city has undertaken to try to get a thousand people off the streets in six months. We succeeded getting 1,200 people into transitional housing. We'll bring another 800 this year to get 2,000 total off the streets and into housing. And we'll work on getting those folks up into permanent housing long term. And so we have to expand our stock of permanently affordable housing, which we're, we'll work to build or permit 3,000 units this year. But we do have the challenge if more and more folks arrive in the city uh, and then aren't able to work as migrants, they do find themselves without housing. And so when we were talking about Secretary Mayorkas, we didn't see our first encampments until November or December in Denver, because before that, folks that arrived could work. As the work authorization ran out and federal funding ran out, we saw more and more folks who ended up in encampments. And then we did have to get them off the streets and into mostly congregate shelter. The difficult part about this is there is no complicated set of needs that our migrants have that end up homeless. All they need is a job. We have folks who've been chronically homeless in our city for years who have different histories of trauma. They might have real uh, mental health issues, might have real addiction needs that require additional wraparound services and supports. Um, many of our migrants have not had to endure some of that trauma. They are just here looking for work. And so we can resolve 
that homelessness much easier for our newcomers if we can just get them access to work. But that's where we need the federal support to do it. But uh, we are successfully supporting those families. But our risk is if the numbers get too high and the federal resources get too low, we will have more and more uh, migrants who end up on the street. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, one of the reasons why you're having uh, more and more migrants on the streets is because the governor of Texas keeps sending them up in buses. I'm wondering, have you spoken to Governor Abbott at all since you were elected seven months ago? Yeah, I have reached out to Governor Abbott a couple of times, both by phone and by email, and we did a news appearance together, and I uh, asked him to have a conversation. I have not heard back from him, but I am always open to that conversation. I certainly don't agree with many of the tactics that he's using in Texas and what he's doing to try to restrict inflow. Um, I do understand that I think uh, part of what his belief is that Texas should not carry the entire weight of this on their own. We understand that. We think that no two or three American cities should bear that weight on their own. And so we, we I love the fact this is a nonpartisan job. We work with folks on all sides of the political spectrum um, and we'll continue doing that to serve our, our residents. And so I'm always open to that collaboration. I think what we find is when people say, oh, well, isn't this a fu- function of the policies that you have in Denver? That is why you receive them. The real reason is we're just the cheapest bus ticket north of El Paso. So it's about an $80 bus ticket from El Paso to Denver, straight up I-25. It's two or $300 to go to a San Francisco or a Chicago or a New York. So it's really just a fiscal decision the governor is making, but we think it's having a outsized impact on uh, our city of about 750,000 people. As you mentioned in the data, we've almost added 5% to the entire city's population just in arrivals over the last year of migrants. And that's a, that's a lot for any city to welcome. Um, and we have done it well. We're very proud of the fact we've done it well. Uh, but we also think to do it well in an ongoing way, we need the partnership of the federal government, other cities and states, uh, and and more ability to work. If you have the opportunity, let's say Governor Abbott actually returns your phone calls and your and your emails, what what would you say to him? Uh, I would say I understand the pressure that you're under. I understand the amount of services you're trying to provide. Why don't we bring other cities and states together to the table with you to figure out how we can partner with Texas to create a plan or which cities and states can accept which number of migrants so we can succeed. America knows how to do this. We did this very well on the relocation of asylees from Ukraine or asylees from Afghanistan. But that was not structured where uh, if you arrived on a plane from Ukraine to New York, the governor of New York decided where to send you. There was a coordinated plan across the country to find cities that had capacity. They arrived in those cities with work authorization, federal support. They did very well. I mean, when I talked to the mayor of Chicago, he will tell you that the city of Chicago has accepted more Ukrainian refugees in the last year than they have migrants from south of the border. 
and he will tell you you can't find a single one of them because they are all integrated into communities. They are all in jobs and houses and neighborhoods and churches doing great. Those from south of the border are living in you know police stations or rec centers or on the streets because those resources don't exist. So we do know how to do this. We could do it collaboratively, and I would be very open to sitting down with the governor of Texas and other states to figure out how we can get that done. Well, let's talk about the politics of this, because where the Democratic Party is today is not where it was a year or so ago on the issue of immigration. Democrats have moved closer to the middle, although some would argue with that bipartisan uh, Senate immigration bill, the party moved to moved to the right. And it begs the question, did Texas, did, did Governor Abbott's decision to bus migrants to cities like yours, did it work? Um, I don't think uh, it worked if the goal was to actually solve the problem. If the goal was to solve the problem, I would have loved to see Governor Abbott calling Speaker Johnson and calling Trump to say, you should pass this bill because this would actually solve my problem here in Texas. I was surprised I didn't hear him do that because I think if we know it would have helped us. I know it would have helped him. Um, and so I think if the goal was to raise awareness to build a broader coalition to solve the problem, uh, that coalition was in place. It had strong Republican leaders, real conservative Republicans who were in support of it. What we needed to do was to come together uh, and support that measure so we could get it done. But I think this is going to really backfire on Republican leaders. And you saw it last night, right, in a congressional race in New York, a seat that uh, they won by, what, seven points 15 months ago. They lost by 20 points last night. They lost by 20 points in a race they tried to make about immigration. And what uh, Swazi said who won was, I supported the bipartisan bill that was introduced that should have passed. And American voters in a previously Republican district said by 20 points, they agree with that also. So I think Americans are not dumb. We all watched. We saw what happened. Uh, We saw Trump immediately call and ask for that to die and Republicans listen, even though it would have solved the problem. And I think people don't want to reelect people who are going to use their position to make American problems worse. I think they want to elect people who actually want to solve American problems. And that's not the goodwill that the House leadership showed in the last two weeks. And, and just to be clear, Tom Suazi won, won his race last night by by eight percentage points. Um, not, oh, sorry. I thought it was larger than that. No, no, no. Eight, eight percentage points. But it's still big. <laughs> you are not wrong. <laughs> you are not wrong in that. Um, Mayor, my Washington Post um, columnist colleague, Perry Bacon, um, has, a, has a provocative column. Let me read you this one, one part from it. He writes, on immigration, left-leaning parties in Europe adopting more nativist rhetoric and policies have often moved public sentiment even further against immigration, but not helped those parties do better electorally. That's happening in the United States, too. Is Perry wrong? Uh, uh, I don't know, Perry, but I leave in, in this instance that, uh, that that is wrong um, because I think what we're seeing is, you know, in Denver, people are very supportive and welcoming to migrants. They know we're a country of immigrants. They believe in the send us your huddled masses yearning to be free part of America. They all have their own immigrant stories. And we believe there's a way to do that that is also pragmatic and that is also financially responsible. Um, and that's why I think... Uh, what you have is people that want to foment this into a sort of divisive um, uh, conversation. That's not where we are. We are in, there is a both and solution where you can welcome migrants, support them and help them succeed. And that's why I think it's the people who want to foment this argument that want to make it divisive because I think if they have more migrants on the streets who are forcing cities and states to pay for them, that that will make people angry. Um, when the very thing those migrants tell me every day is they don't want public resources. Um, and so if you deny them the chance to work, force them onto the public dole, you can make people mad about them. 
we're very deliberate about not sowing that kind of division. And I've said very clearly in my press conference, this is not the fault of the migrants that have arrived. This is not the fault of the city workers who are working overtime, two or three jobs to make this all work. It's the fault of some number of federal elected leaders on the Republican side who wanted to make this problem worse and chose to. And I want to be careful to say there are many courageous Republicans who stood up and wanted to solve this. So I don't think this is a partisan issue. This is really a Trump and a kind of extremist approach issue. Um, but uh, I don't think Americans' disposition will change. I think what they'll be frustrated by is a government that insisted on making the problem worse and not better. Was the Biden administration um, late to acknowledge the severity of the situation, not only at the border, but in cities like yours in New York and Chicago? Could the administration have moved faster, quicker, sooner? I mean, they've been incredibly responsive to us. You know, I text and call Secretary Mayorkas regularly. I've been in regular touch with the White House. When we have issues that come up, they respond. We said we had to put legal clinics in place so we could have people who came through the CBP-1 process who do have work authorization need to stand up clinics to move a thousand people in two weeks. They sent out folks from USCIS to process all those applications. So I think, you know, in July and August, they saw it developing the way that we did. Um, they adjusted with the work authorization, which helped through the fall. Uh, and then it was the time when money ran out and work authorization ran out. They tried to go through Congress with the idea to do what people had asked, which was, was to seek a bipartisan deal and thought they negotiated one in good faith. So I feel like they shouldn't be punished for trying to do what was their job, which is to negotiate in good faith with a with a two-party system. I just think they got the football pulled away from them uh, in a way that wasn't fair, but I think we would have been equally critical of them if, if they didn't engage in that kind of negotiation. And so uh, I, I feel like they have responded at each stage with the urgency that's required. I think it's very hard to do a deal with a partner that wants you to fail. Mm. You know, Mayor Johnston, according to a recent NBC News poll, voters said Donald Trump would do a better job than Biden on immigration and border security by 57% to 22%. If you were advising President Biden, how would you advise him to talk about immigration on the campaign trail? Yeah, I, mean, I think the folks that think that will get to watch what the Trump border policy looks like right now, because this is the policy he's picked, and it will be increasing volume of arrivals without what work authorization, without federal dollars, struggle and challenge for American cities. And so I think that that shows you his intent, and I think is not to solve the problem, but to actually make it worse. But I think if I were talking to the president, um, as I've talked to him about this, I think what we would say is um, that the case that you have made in this bipartisan deal is where Americans are. You know, we both want to have some uh, heightened restrictions around entry that are fair, that set a fair boundary for asylum applications, and make sure those are processed quickly so that people that are admitted are admitted fairly. And when they're admitted, they can work right away and they can support themselves. Um, and I think that balance is what folks want. They don't want chaos at the border. They want order. They do want people who are fleeing from persecution in their countries to be able to come to the U.S. and build a life. And they want us to help them integrate into these communities and do it successfully. I think that's the path that was laid out in the bipartisan bill that he helped write. And I think when the, the voters see this, they will elect a new House Speaker and a new Congress that will come back and get that deal done in November, if not before. Um, last question for you, Mayor. You've talked a lot about working in, in, in partnership with the federal government and how you need the federal government, but the federal government's not coming to the rescue because that the, the bipartisan bill is dead. So it, it, are, there, are there any creative ways um, or plans that you can devise, come up with, or could implement that would get around the federal government and, and allow you to um, to do something about immigration without the federal government? 
Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Jonathan. And that's our spirit in Denver. We're not partisan at heart. We're just problem solvers. We just want to make this work for our city. And so we hoped there would be federal support. Now that the Congress has shown us there won't be, we will figure this out uh, on our own. And so we have to figure out a plan for shared sacrifice. We will have to figure out how to make some cuts to city budgets and city services without trying to impact those that are most at risk. We will have to restructure how we support migrants and the number of migrants we can support and how we make that work more efficiently and effectively so we can meet that. And we are working on some creative ideas on how we can solve those problems, including opportunities for housing and work that will be entirely legal, but will help make sure we can uh, avoid the scenario where people can't work or where the city has to continue to pay the cost of them not working. We think that doesn't work for the city and doesn't work for the country. So without federal support, we will figure it out on our own. And we have business leaders and nonprofit leaders who are at the table and want to make it work here in Denver. So I think like most of America, we are practical. We just want to find a way to a common sense solution. And so if the if the Congress can't do that, we will do that here on the ground in Denver and try to build a new model for how the country can make this work. Let me squeeze in in, in one more question um, that's related to what you just mentioned. Um, I have this note here um, that Denver has reactivated a policy to discharge families from shelters after reaching the 42-day limit. What happens to those families when they hit the 42-day limit? Where do they go? Yes, yeah, so we have great ca- case managers here and nonprofit partners who, from the day they arrive, from day one to day 42, are helping connect them to work authorization, to housing, to social services, to partners, sometimes to families who will directly host them in their homes. And so we are uh, we are expeditiously, aggressively case managing all those folks. So when they leave, they have a transition plan. But that's a good example. Uh, we can't keep folks in shelter forever because the costs get too high. Um, so that includes why we're standing up legal clinics to apply for work authorization. Uh, the challenge is that work authorization will get harder and harder without federal support. So we'll have to find more and more opportunities for what people can do that is legal work. Um, But we use that time to case manage folks and then help them get a transition plan so that folks are all getting moved either into housing one way or another. So when we moved out our first, I think 50 or 60 families last Monday or Tuesday, uh, they all had plans on places to go and none of them ended up on the streets. And so that is always our goal. Mike Johnston, 46th mayor of Denver. Thank you very much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. It was an honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to having you come visit in Denver soon. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.